Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave, and this is episode 120 of the podcast. And this one is all about winterizing the homestead. So stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft This episode is brought to you by the Hunter's Journey online course and community. Have you ever thought about getting into hunting but don't even know where to begin? Have you ever felt intimidated about getting into it because, well, you don't have people that want to support this exploration of food of yours? Or maybe you grew up in the hunting community but haven't felt connected to the morals and ethics of those that you know who hunt. For the last three years, my good friend Chris Gilmore and I have been running an online hunting course that has grown and blossomed into one of those beautiful communities that I've ever been involved with. With access to hundreds of hours of videos, both short and sweet, as well as long and detailed, virtual hunt camps and classes, as well as an online growing community where you can share your experiences, get help with your challenges, and celebrate your successes. The Hunter's Journey is everything I ever wished for in my hunting community. And now it can be your hunting community. To learn more and register, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com. And if you register today, use the promo code DRAGONFLY75, and you can save $75 off of registration. I know Chris and I would both love to have you, and I know the community is excited to join you on your hunter's journey. All right, folks. Well, at the recording of this, it is Wednesday, I believe, November, yep, November 16th. And it is the first night of snowfall that is staying. It might not last for long, but it's on the ground and it's staying. So this has brought up a few conversations in my house. This has brought up a couple of conversations amongst my friends and crew of what we need to get done before the snow stays for good. And the snow stays deep and the snow stays long. And I've mostly broken this down to three categories. Um, There's a whole bunch of other categories of like winterizing your vehicle, your winter camping gear, all that kind of stuff. And we've talked about a lot of that in the past. You can find that on some of our holiday episodes. You can find that on some of our winter survival episodes, all that kind of stuff. What we're going to focus on today is the homestead. If you are a homesteader, if you are someone that is living on a quarter acre, an apartment, uh, a big acreage of land, whatever... These are the three main categories that are going to be topical for you, and specifically you. So, the three categories are as follows. Garden, livestock, home itself. And we're going to break each one of these down piece by piece. We're not going to dive too deep into a lot of them. Seed saving, we're not going to get into too much though it's very much part of this, uh, but it's because we've already done an episode on seed saving. We're not going to dive too deep into firewood because we've talked about firewood in the past. We're not going to dive too deep into equipment of any particular because we've done a lot of Tools of the Trade episodes on the homestead and everything else. So this is mostly a checklist of what we're doing here to make sure we're ready for winter. And if I sound really weird tonight, I'm not trying to put on a Barry Manilow voice. I'm not trying to sound uber macho. 
uh, I've got some sort of laryngitis from all the uh, upper respiratory infections I've been getting since September. So my voice is a little weird. Um, if you hear me coughing really bad, I'm going to try and mute or pause whenever that happens. But if I don't catch it in time, my apologies, folks. So garden, livestock, home. Let me take a swig of water. All right. So let's start with the garden itself. A lot of this should have been done like a month ago. And for most of our garden, it was already done. So we're just going down what we've done and what we are going to continue to do in the garden. So the first thing is chop and drop all stalks and plants. Um, even things like perennials, this is a good time to prune. This is a good time to cut things back, prune things back. Highbush blueberry, lowbush blueberry, they actually really, really like getting pruned. They like actually being, it's part of their evolution of being attacked by animals that are going for the berries and in the process chew a bunch of the leaves, chew a bunch of the branches, rip the plants apart. Uh, just as the leaves are starting to turn red, I'll start yanking twigs off and snipping them and, and pulling my rake through there and kind of abusing the bush in a sense. That's a strange thing that we turn into a euphemism. Um, Anyways, that is one thing we can do is like actually prune back things and cut things back. But we're mostly done with the annuals here and some of the, the, the um, non-woody perennials, things like horseradish, uh, chop and drop, chop everything up, throw it on the ground, get that nutrients back in the soil. If you're not going to compost it, and usually if it's this cold out, you can't easily compost it. Might as well use it as an early season mulch. All right. So we're going to chop everything down. Horseradish, I've chopped all my tomatoes down, I've chopped all my corn stalks, I've chopped all my amaranth, my beans, everything. <clears throat> Any fruits or vegetables I'm taking from them have been taken from them. The rest of the body is left dead on the ground. Um, if you have plants with hardy seeds, remove those seeds first because they're, they're going to come right back up unless you want them to be there next year. So make that very, very clear to yourself. Uh, I don't care if the tomatoes have rotted on the vine. I don't care if the tomatoes got frost damage on them. Do not leave them there if you're not planning on growing tomatoes there next year. Tomato seeds are very hardy, which is baffling to me that they don't, you know, become an invasive species uh, as much as they could be. Squash are the same way. If there's any squash left on the ground, cucumbers, anything like that. Uh, so cucumbers, cucumelons, zucchinis, squash, pumpkin, anything with seed, pull it off, leave the vines on the ground, leave the stalks on the ground, whatever, get them on the ground, cut them from their root stock. And if you live in clay soils, you want those roots to be left in the ground. Don't pull them out of your garden bed, leave them in there because 90% of the, what I just listed on there from the cucumbers and the tomatoes and everything, the roots will die. They're not going to survive the winter. They're just not going to survive the winter here in Canada. The benefit to you then is the fact that they're left in the ground, kind of like how daikon radishes are used by a lot of people in permaculture. Uh, same reason I top all of the burdocks. I don't, uh, burdock is a, is a weed to a lot of people. I eat it. Um, gobo is what's called in Japan. I eat the roots. So we actually purposely leave them alone in certain spots to let them grow and eat those roots. But then I also leave them in other spots where they are punching holes into that clay. 
and then I chop them mid-season to try and cut off any fruiting of seeds or uh, specifically the flowers. I don't want the flowers to bloom and then turn to seed and become a problem. Uh, but I also chop all the leaves and mulch that area with them. And if it sends up new leaves, that's a lot of energy that that root is having to send back up. So I chop them off again. And then by winter time or by late fall, I've chopped them down so many times that there's just a bunch of organic matter on the surface. And that root has exhausted, depleted itself of energy. There's not enough carbohydrates left in the tuber to send up a lot of shoots in the spring. It might, sometimes they do, and I just repeat the process of chop and drop, chop and drop, uh, chop and drop, chop and drop. And that leaves us with a lot of organic matter on the surface, but then those roots begin to rot. And that's a good thing. So the same thing with your tomatoes, your cucumbers, anything you're growing that has, you know, um, roots that are going to be able to be killed. Those are great things to leave in the ground if you're in clay soil. And if you're in sandy soil, yeah, do that too. If you're in organic humus, <clears throat> high loam, uh, you can choose to pull. I usually leave them anyways because I want as much organic matter in that soil as possible to feed the bacteria, the fungi, everything else is living in there. I want living soil, not dead soil that's just full of fertilizers and chemicals. So the first thing on the list, chop and drop everything you can and leave it there. I know some people compost their corn stalks and they compost their sunflower stalks. I don't. I chop them up into tiny little pieces with a machete and just leave them as a mulch and it will rot. It will rot by spring. By, by the time you get to planting season or at least to time to start amending your soil, that stuff has rotted a good amount. By the time you're turning in more compost into that soil, you've already got compost in that soil. And if you have thick plants, um, grassy-like plants like buckwheat, uh, which is not grassy at all, sorry, um, but buckwheat's a good example, like a cover crop. Cover crop situations, chop and drop it all and leave it there, and it will act as a mulch that will help protect the soil from new plants' growth. Personally, I leave my buckwheat or anything else like that, my cover crops, until spring when I rip them out of the ground, incinerate them, burn the garden bed. I burn my garden beds. I, I know some people are horrified by that, but that's a very fast way to reintroduce ash, or sorry, potassium specifically, and other nutrients and minerals back into the soil quickly, is to just burn everything to ash. Don't burn it to coals. Don't try to keep anything. We're not trying to make biochar, though you can. You can make biochar out of that stuff. Um, but I don't, because we have enough biochar that we created already on the property I just turn it to ash to get a fast amount of potassium back in the soil. That's going to then be mixed in with nutrients like nitrogen and calcium and magnesium from the compost. Right? Okay. So that's the first part. Chop and drop as much as you can. Stalks, vines, woody plants even. Knock them all down. Um, my elderberries, my black elderberries, come winter, maybe late winter, early spring, when those buds are nice and big on them, I'll start trimming them off. And I'm going to put them into a rooting hormone and store them. And then mid-spring, not late spring, not early spring, mid-spring, like April around here, you'll see me shoving these stakes into the ground wherever there's wet soil. All around camp mud, all through the Hiawatha woodlands, through the forest edges, through the shoreline, you're going to see me driving these stakes in the ground. And those stakes are um, cuttings 
of my black elderberry. And I want them all through the forest because this is a native variety. I want them all through the forest here. But that's a woody plant that we can chop and in a sense drop. I'm not dropping them. I'm dropping them into a basket or a bucket. But I am chop and dropping in a sense. So that's the first thing on the list. Chop and drop. The second thing, store your root vegetables. Parsnips, carrots, potatoes. They should have all been pulled by now. There's a lot of ways to store them. My Jerusalem artichokes are sunchokes. Uh, I store them in multiple ways. You can have five-gallon buckets with loose, slightly damp. You don't want a lot of damp sand. No lid. And I just layer them. I'll pour about two inches of sand into the bottom of the bucket, add a layer of tubers, and then add another two inches of sand, add a layer, or sorry, inch of sand, add a layer of tubers. And I stack them up until they're almost at the top, and I cap it with sand, and they get stored in the basement. If you have a root cellar, even better. Uh, I don't have a root cellar at this time, maybe down the road. <coughs> Pardon me. But yeah, that is a big thing. You need to have those tubers in well before freeze up. Sunchokes, not so much. One of the other ways I store my sunchokes is I literally just chop down all the stalks and make them as a mulch on top, and then I bring in a bunch of straw, a bunch of leaf litter, and I just make a mound on top of them. And that mound could potentially freeze, but it's so, you know, it's not decomposed enough at that point before freeze up that I can usually get a shovel through there. And the ground is usually a little thawer at that spot, a little bit more thawed at that location. And so I can dig into my sunchoke bed and get sunchokes midwinter. And I like those a little bit more than the sand ones, but they both work well. The next thing... I'm going to focus on after taking care of my tubers and taking care of uh, my garden beds themselves being chopped and dropped is compost. Move and cover compost. So this year, uh, so our first full year of composting, we produced just shy of 2,000. Actually, I think a little just over actually by the end of the year. Yeah, about 2,100 pounds. So we we're just shy of a metric ton of compost produced on the quarter acre homestead. 2,100 pounds, that's including food waste, that's including weeds from the garden, that's including lawn clippings from my place as well as neighbors. So not directly, it wasn't like, you can't say it was 100% right from the property, but neighbors across the street from me, across the road from me, next door to me, leaf litter, uh, seaweed, things like that that we could pull up from the shoreline, uh, anything that need to be broken down, as well as all of our ducks bedding. From the entire year of having them that year, we produced 2,100 pounds, mostly from the straw bedding as the main carbon with a little bit of nitrogen, of course, from the duck's poop. Uh, we've talked about that tons in Duckapalooza and a bunch of other random rants of mine about the ducks. If you didn't know I like, uh, like ducks, check the rest of the podcast, folks. You'll fi figure it out pretty quick. Um, but... This year, we didn't produce as much compost. In fact, my end-of-year weight of compost was just over 450 pounds. Stark difference, right? Not really. It's not that we didn't do the same amount of work. It was more that we used that material in a different way. Um, Rye and I pulled in about three months' supply of food waste which was about 45 pounds, 50 pounds. Um, and then layered that with fish guts, 
um, some of the uh, the organs or uh, viscera, the inedible parts of our ducks that we had to slaughter, uh, as well as a ton of seaweed. So we live right on Rice Lake, on the, nor on the north shore of Rice Lake, and about mid-June, you get thousands of pounds, thousands of pounds of seaweed. And it's mostly invasive um, aqua uh, aquatic plants. Um, Eurasian milfoil, uh, the water dragon, all that kind of stuff. We It all washes up on shore and tries to drift uh, further down the lake to find a new spot to bed in. We go down with pitchforks and rakes and, and uh, wheelbarrows and we get rid of it. We rake it all up, go a hundred something yards back up to my garden and we use those with wood chips and duck straw to make one massive compost pile. The reason being we decided to do that was we needed about 400 to 500 pounds of compost to amend next year's garden beds, right? <coughs> and so we needed a certain amount of compost, but we didn't want to use all of the duck bedding because we already had new garden beds to work on, including potato beds. Um, all of our previous beds needed mulch. All the new beds needed mulch, all that kind of stuff. And the duck bedding was an easy answer. We have to clean out all through the summer. We have to clean out the duck coop at least once a week, if not twice a week, um, to reduce. Uh, and we're using things like LAB or um, Bokashi um, wheat bran with the liquid uh, lactobacillus acidophilus bacteria liquid all through the gar uh, the, uh, the the duck coop to help control odor to help control their health uh, keep out molds uh, and all that kind of stuff but the smell is still gonna it, like it can helps control the odor but not enough so we're removing that duck bedding usually on good day on good weeks once a week sometimes once every two weeks but during those real humid days of early to mid-july we're removing straw twice a week and that's what we use. We use straw bedding. Hay has too much seed in it, so we go for, uh, straight for the straw. And that has to go somewhere. And yeah, we could compost it, but we were like, you know what? Let's use this to our advantage. We're making, we're, we're using this straw twice because we're going to, well, technically we're using it three times. We're using it as bedding for the coop. When they soil it, we pull it out. We're going to now use it as mulch on the beds. And then they're going to be amending the soil as well at the same time, right? All that duck manure is going straight into the garden every time it gets watered. But then that straw has to rot eventually. So it's going to build soil as well. So we're kind of doing this three-part system instead of composting. So we didn't produce as much compost as we have in the past. But it was for a reason that made sense. It wasn't because we weren't doing the same amount of work, just not putting it all in one big pile and turning it every couple of days. So that was one thing. So we have one pile of 450-ish pounds of compost that I cover with tarps and got up off the ground so that when the thaw happens in the spring, we don't leach out a bunch of that nutrients right into random soil. And then we reloaded because all through the fall for the last, I'd say, three and a half months, um, we've been doing deep litter. And that's what we do every spring, every winter, and every fall. We, we do deep litter. And what deep litter is, instead of removing the straw, you just put another layer of straw on top of it. And every once in a while, you throw in your LAB, your, your lacto, uh, lactobacillus 
acidophilus bacteria liquid. How do you make that? Get a bunch of raw rice, uncooked rice, fill it basically two cups, uh, one cup of rice to one cup of water, sometimes even less. Uh, so I would start off with about a liter of rice and about a liter of water, mix that up in a jar, leave it for a couple of hours, strain it, seal it and put it in a dark space for about a week. After a week, I would, uh, and the sealing isn't like with an actual mason jar lid, it's with like cheesecloth to let it breathe. I want the lactobacillus bacteria in there. The, the, the lacto, the lacto active bacteria, basically lactobacilli to breathe. I want them to have their thing going on. After a week, I put into a larger jar, about a, a gallon jar with about a liter of milk, sometimes two liters of milk. And so you strain out the rice wash, take that white rice wash and you put that into a jar with a mesh top of some sort. I use cheesecloth for a week in a dark space, and then you add it to another liter of milk. And that's where the word lacto in lactobacillus acidophilus bacteria comes from, LAB. <clears throat> and you leave that for about a week, sometimes two weeks, and you'll see a separation, a clear separation, three layers, solid on top, liquid in the, like milky whitish clear liquid in the middle, and then solids at the bottom. What I do is I scoop off all that solid on the top and I mix that with wheat bran, uh, with corn kernels, with uh, their food, whatever. And that goes into their food for the week. And that gives them probiotic bacteria basically in their guts, which is going to help them health-wise. It's going to help them with uptake of minerals, uptake of nutrients, it's also going to help their gut flora balance out and be real healthy, but it also is going to reduce odor coming from them, right? That's what probiotic can do for us is it can reduce the odor. You're going to still be gassy, but you're not going to be stinky. Then I take the liquid in the middle and I split it in half. One half goes as a starter for the next batch. I just pour it into another jar and I add milk to it. The other half goes into a spray bottle with water. And a little bit of sugar, not a lot of sugar. Like I, I literally mean like a quarter teaspoon of sugar just to be like a food source. You can use molasses, you can use maple sugar, you can use straight up maple syrup, whatever. That goes in to a spray bottle and I spray down the layers every uh, time we put on a new layer, I spray it down with that. And that allows the lactobacillus acidophilus bacteria, the LAB, to eat the duck waste and reduce the odor of the duck waste. So I don't have molds developing in the straw. I don't have viruses and bacterium running wild in there. I don't have pathogens that are harmful to my birds in there. The LAB does that. And this is something that's being used. LAB is being used on everything from, uh, you know, cow manure to human waste. It's an amazing product. Uh, and you can make it at home with rice and milk. Like, this is pretty close to self-sufficient as, as most people can get as long as you have contacts with farms that have dairy 
and you have contacts with people that are growing rice. If you don't have rice, there's other ways to get LAB as well. You can look into that stuff as well. Maybe we'll bring in an expert sometime to talk about LAB. We're not really a gardening podcast, but we do a lot of homesteading stuff. So it makes kind of sense that we should bring in someone that knows this stuff better than me, at least anyone would know better than me on this stuff. So fall, winter, spring, the ducks have deep litter during the summer. We change it out. And that brings us to the other part of all that straw that we pulled out. We just pulled out all their bedding their, their of the fall. And that went into our compost corrals. We have these pallets stacked up and bolted together into these two, basically looks like a big W from the sky. Uh, basically two stalls that we fill up with compost so that we have a lot of turnover. And this is late season. This is late season. I do not expect this compost to go hot. It has happened before, but I don't expect it this year because I haven't nourished this bedding as much. We haven't been turning it. We we just put it in, uh, I want to say today, but it was actually probably yesterday. Um, it went in very late in the season because we're planning out new stuff for the ducks, which we'll get to in a minute when we talk about the livestock part. But basically this straw is going to sit in the corral all winter, most of the spring and probably not be ready to go on the beds until probably the day we plant. So that's, that's a pretty late season compost, but (coughs) pardon me, we already have 400 pounds to amend the bed. So I don't need that compost yet. And that was kind of how my thinking was with this. This is how I'm planning my stuff out. We amended those beds last spring and last fall with again, 2100 pounds of compost and this is a quarter acre homestead we that's not including that's not the entire garden in that quarter acre that's the duck pen that's my smithy that's the garden sheds that's the garden that's the wood uh the wood lot where we have all of our stacked firewood and stuff that's the homestead the whole homestead is on the quarter acre not just the garden and so when we look at this whole grand scheme of things, we amended a lot of soil last year, this past spring. So putting 400 plus pounds next spring, will just re-amend what we already took care of this year. So yeah, um, compost, taking care of that, getting it moved around. This is a time that you can start laying out compost on your garden beds. I don't because I want to leave that ner- that nutrients fairly solid up until the point that I'm going to be growing in it. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, with certain kinds of compost, you want to put them in the soil now, not just before planting. Manure should be aged. Even if it's been slightly composted, it should be aged. And that allows, especially with things like horse manure, to cool down. So by the time spring comes along, the soil is nice and rich and organic, but it's not going to burn your seeds or burn the roots. So yeah, that's, that's one consideration for me with thermophilic compost. It's gone through its breakdown. It is ready to go, but if I put it into the soil now and let it freeze up all winter and then in the thaw, it's, it's on a hill. Like my entire property is on the hill, but even if it's not on a hill, every property is on some sort of grade. 
and any spring runoff can trickle out a lot of that nutrients and I lose it before I can use it. I'd rather use it than lose it. Especially because I live beside a lake that deals with algal blooms. I don't want to be encouraging that with things like phosphorus and potassium and nitrogen getting into the waterways. So I want to keep that in the soil and keep it there. So what I do is I can put it in Rubbermaids. I can put it or any large Tupperware kind of containers or plastic totes. Uh, I can put it into barrels. I can put it into, you know, canisters or containers of whole different makes and models. What I really do is I get a big, heavy tarp. And I lay it out flat and I pile all my compost on one part of it. And then I scoop up, scoop up, uh, scoop up all the corners, all the sides that are short, pile those all up around it, and then take the big flap on the other side and flip it over the whole top and weigh that down with logs. That's done me just fine over the years. <coughs> I'm sure it's not been a very scientific process. Uh, I'm sure that if we actually did soil samples around that compost pile and compared to the nutrients that's in the compost pile before spring, during spring, before the fall, before yada, 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 I'm sure we would see some loss. But it's nowhere close to as much loss as if I spread it out evenly across a bunch of garden beds and let them all get rained on. Right? And I'm trying to keep this as low-tech and as cost uh, as cost effective as possible for me. So, in that lens, I move my compost into a tarp, cover it with the dress of the tarp, and seal it off as best I can for the winter. And I just leave it alone. I don't do anything with it. I don't touch it again. I'm not checking it with the thermometer anymore. It's it's done. It's processed. Now I'm just letting it rest. And then whatever's been put into the compost corrals, that stuff will be the next year's compost start. That'll be what I, pr I start with. And I pull out the other um, deep litter from the winter and the spring and pile them on. Throw in a bunch of food scraps. Throw in a bunch of kitchen scraps. Throw in a bunch of weeds. <laughs> early season weeds though most of my early season quote-unquote weeds get fed to the ducks anyways so that's one big thing is the compost the next thing is i'm going to take care of all the seeds i have literally you know those big uh paper compost bags or leaf litter bags landscaping bags whatever you want to call them i have literally two of those filled with amaranth right now giant amaranth we harvested earlier in the season our mustard already, our giant red mustard. Um, we've harvested our sunflower seeds. We've ha harvested our squash, Gediocosamin, Lenalenape squashes, both of them. Lenalenape white squash, Gediocosamin squash, different varieties. And we're letting them age right now so that we can eat them probably midwinter to late winter. And when that happens, we will pull out the seeds and of the best fruit, we'll take those seeds and save them. And all the other seeds will get eaten. But those seeds will be cleaned and dried. Our tomatoes, they've been fermenting for about a week now. I'm letting them age and get really soft and gross. Uh, not moldy, just gross looking, just mushy. And then I'm going to wash them in a sieve. Get all that goop into the compost that's going to get thrown on top of all that duck, uh, duck bedding that's in the compost piles right now. And then the seeds are going to be poured across cardboard and left to dry. And then we're going to pick them off. And these are Cherokee, uh, Cherokee tomatoes, Roma tomatoes, all kinds of different kinds of tomatoes. We enjoyed all of them, so I'm just going to start them all again next spring. And we're going to plant them again. 
<clears throat> in a different location, but in the same way. So that's one thing. The corn, the beans are all dried out. Uh, our squash are all dried out. Our sunflowers are dried out and stored. We've preserved all of our seed for next year. Um, I'm really excited about the giant red mustard. We did a really good haul of it this year. We didn't get a good year of it last year, I think just because we planted so late. Um, but we got a good, a really good haul of it this year, like about, uh, I would say about one of those small canning jars of mustard seed. And we already processed a lot into mustard. So we kept a very small, like thimble amount of seed to spread next year. I'm going to buy another batch of seed from a different company, but the same variety just to try and change up the genetics a bit and make sure they're strong and healthy. But we're going to be putting them in their own actual complete garden bed. We're going to we're going to build a garden bed just for the mustard. It's going to be a very large one because I really enjoy that seasoning. And it's that's kind of like the fun when you start getting into this. And you re, by your third or fourth year of gardening, you know what you like to eat. You know what you like to use. And so you can start to say, okay, the potatoes didn't do well. But the sunchokes did. I'm going to give more room to the sunchokes next year. And then the next year, that's like year one. Your first year, you're like, oh, the potatoes didn't do well. Year two, you're going, mm, I'm not really a fan of eating sunchokes. Why did the potatoes fail? Why did the potatoes not do well? And you try to figure that out. And you resolve that issue, and then you try the potatoes again, and now you can give them more room. Year three, year four, now you're going, okay, I really like this variety. I want to give them all the carte blanche they can have. I want to give them all the room, all the nutrients, all the water they want. I want to do everything for them now because that's the crop I really enjoy. And then you can start to play with it. So our potatoes failed on us this year. Um, like horrible returns. And I think partially that was because they were in a slightly shaded area and potato does love its sun. Um, I think as well, I've had a few people argue with me about how the way that we did the bedding, but it's the Ruth Stout method that has worked with potatoes for decades. It, it works. The method works. I don't know if I did it properly. Uh, and what I think I would do differently next year is I would scratch that soil below, even though it's supposed to be a no-till method, I don't really care about till versus no-till. To me, it's whatever's the most efficient or whatever works the best. And I think with potatoes, giving them a little bit softer soil to dig into and to get to their nutrients to start is a bonus. Giving them more sun, I think, would also be a bonus. But it was also like a droughty year, even though potatoes are kind of drought-hardy. <laughs> if you listen to enough people, they'll tell you things like, if you think you need to water your potatoes, give it a day. And that's kind of where I'm at. I think I didn't give them enough sunlight. They were under a couple of locust trees, and that didn't give them the most sun. They could have had a lot more sun. So we're going to move their garden bed to a different area. Uh, the garden bed where we put the potatoes was chosen there because that used to be where the old duck coop and pen were for the first year of us having ducks. Um... And there's a lot of nutrients in that soil because of those ducks. So we grew the potatoes there, hoping to give them as much nutrients as possible. We're planning on clearing about another half an acre to acre of forest. That's the plan at this point for the winter. We want to cut them down for firewood. They're 
the poplar trees that are on the property. We're going to get this in the firewood section in a little bit in the home uh, section, but we need to clear some of the wood lots, uh, some of the wood lot that we have here. Uh, and we're going to be moving the duck pen in the spring closer to our new home, uh, home further up the hill and turning the old duck pen into a little silviculture kind of project where we'll be planting a lot of butternuts, um, hickories, uh, a lot of different fruit trees, more locusts, things like that in one spot. Um, honey locusts as well, not just black locust. All in one spot uh, and then slowly build up the hill as we go with the ducks throughout the years and then bring them back down and kind of have almost like pasture that the ducks can walk through. It's a wooded pasture kind of thing. So that's kind of like the plan. Um, but to get to there, we need to, uh, plan out the gardens. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to knock down all those trees that we've been planting. And then one area that's going to be completely exposed out in the open in the bright sun is where we're going to put the new potato bed further up the hill. And where the old potato bed was that we have to knock down the trees at as well. Anyways, um, it's always good to move your potatoes and other vegetables Crop rotation isn't as important when you're going with full sustainable agriculture and you're letting diversity happen. You have more than one variety of potato, you have more than one variety of sunflower, more than one variety of uh, lettuce or whatever, and then you have them all kind of intermingling with each other. That reduces pests, that reduces parasites, that reduces pathogens, everything. And so that's one thing. But... It's always good to move your potatoes because of potato blight. Even if you have other varieties, it's always good to kind of move them around in different spots and give them better advantages. So instead, where the current potato bed is, I'm going to be putting our mustard. I'm going to clear back all the trees there. I'm going to make it actually a much larger project there. Um, pretty much the extent of the property in that area uh, is going to be mustard because it's a great easy you get the hurt you get the, like the you got the greens to eat throughout the spring and early summer into summertime by july august you're harvesting the, the the seed you're done the harvest is done you can clear all that entire patch and either throw a bunch more seed down and do it again or put a different crop in there something that can grow fast if you're done by july <coughs> reamend this <coughs> pardon me reamend the soil for a week or so with nitrogens and compost and everything else, fish emulsion, what have you, compost teas, and then plant a new crop, something like um, brassicas of different varieties, kales, um, broccoli, all that kind of stuff you can put in there, cabbages, which are great August into winter crops to grow. So that's a great option there for me is I can get a huge yield of mustard as a, as a pickling spice, as a... Um, just literally making a, a liquid mustard. Like that was the best mustard I've ever had was our maple vinegar and our mustard ground up and mixed together with a little bit of salt. And bam, it was amazing on sandwiches. It was amazing on top of pork chops. It was amazing everywhere. Absolutely spicier than Dijon, sweeter than sweet mustards. It couldn't be beat. And so I want to grow more of that. And so we're going to do that in the old potato garden. And the old potatoes, uh, the potatoes in the old potato garden are going to be moved up the hill where they can get more sunlight, maybe better drainage, um, maybe better soil. We'll see. So 
this is that time of like sitting down and going over everything. Go through your garden journal. I always recommend home, like, um, my wife has like the duck journal. That is all the projects with the ducks and all the breeds, all the names, the families, the lineages, the health issues of this one, the health issues of that one, uh, who, who laid what kind of eggs and how many, all that kind of stuff. That's a great thing to have because then you have something to cross-reference with later when you're debriefing at the end of season. Do the same with your garden. The more you journal, the more ideas you'll have for later, the more references you'll have, the more you'll be able to cite what you did and how it worked. Always document it all. Document everything you can. So beyond the compost, beyond the seed saving, beyond the mulching down your plants to get the nutrients back in the soil, there's the actual mulching that we got to do. There, there's a saying that if plants are eating your soil, the soil is eating itself. And there's a lot of ways to interpret that. Part of that is the fact that the microbes inside will just consume until they're dead uh, because they're not getting any new nutrients. There is also, as we were talking about earlier, leaching. You can lose a lot of your soil to leaching from rainwater, from runoff, all that kind of stuff. Cover crops are a great option if you did that. It's a little late in the season to plant winter rye, okay? It's a little too late in the season to plant buckwheat. It's a little too late in the season to plant anything. It's, it's mid-November. You're late. It's too late. What you can do is get mulch. Mulch will buffer a lot of that. It's not going to stop it, but it will buffer it. It will also insulate your soil and the microbes within from the harsh winter. You can use straw, you can use seaweed, you can use the plants in your garden. The best I've used, and it's not the only way to do it, and it's not the best in every situation, it's the best I've used in my situation, is wood chip. And we've talked about wood chip in the past and how we use it. I'm not going to dive too deep. All I will say is, call, go, go into your phone book, or Google, or whatever... I'm not going to give Google the, the credit. Any random search engine and type arborist and then your town or township or city or whatever. Trackers very disappointed in me talking about Google. Whoever it may be, go on there, find them, and then call them and say, hey, do you need to dump wood chip somewhere? Do you want to dump it here? Just do that. Call Hydro. Call everyone, call your neighbors, call your friends, call your family, call the pastor, whoever. Get contact information of arborists and they will bring wood chip to you because they got to dump it on a daily basis. Uh, in the last month and a half, I have received two giant piles of wood chip. One is walnut, one is poplar. The walnut one we're going to use for the trails to help suppress the plant growth in there because the juglin, although it's a little overhyped, juglin is not like the perfect herbicide. Relax, folks. You can put it in the garden. It'll, it'll be fine. But it's better to put it where it works best. And we have a lot of poplar, which works really well on garden beds. So we're going to be covering all the garden beds in poplar wood chip and all the trails in walnut wood chip. And come spring... I'll rake back all that wood chip back off the garden beds, plant my plants, 
put the compost down, put all the duck bedding from the winter and spring on top as new mulch, and go back to gardening in the spring. And there's a lot of other things we could talk about. We could talk about root cellars and storage and all that. We could. We're not going to. We're going to get into the next one. We're already deep into this podcast and it's 1.30 in the morning and I got to go deer hunting in like four hours. So we're done with the garden part. There's a whole lot more we can talk about gardens. You can find that we've talked about preserving food. We've talked about storing and saving seeds. We've talked about how the gardens work and the ducks work with that. Check out those episodes. You can find them out here on the podcast. Livestock. Livestock. Now, in our situation, we have waterfowl. We had quail the second year of our garden, and then we opted not have them again for a while. Not until we get things settled down. Might be getting quail in the summer, maybe next fall even. Uh, We may also be getting pigeons in the fall. Why pigeons? My kid wants pigeons. He really loves pigeons. Nothing wrong with that. They are a non-native bird. Um, I'm making arrangements right now to live trap pigeons in the spring uh, in the Peterborough region. I got. I'm just waiting to hear back from City Hall on how to do that with them. Uh, they are a non-native bird. They are technically an invasive species. They cause problems, uh, and therefore we want to catch some. Probably about ten after we have a hutch built for them and a proper habitat and everything else. And then we're just going to feed them for two weeks and then open the doors and they can fly free and go find their own stuff and then come back to roost and get some feed, get some grit, get some water, get some shelter. Um, But that's in a year, not right now. We're not getting quail right now. We have ducks and geese. If you got sheep, if you've got goats, if you got pigs, if you got cattle, you're going to want to look into what they need for the winter. In, in my case with the waterfowl, it's pretty much the same stuff that your animals are going to need. Pretty much. Uh, a little bit of difference in certain situations, a little bit of different solutions, different problems in some ways. Same problems, different solutions because of what the animals are. Um, the three first things you got to think about, the first three things you got to think about is food, water, shelter. Not necessarily in that order though. To me, it's shelter, water, food. And maybe that's because of all my years of survival training and bushcraft work um, and being an instructor in the field of bushcraft. But I think it's also because those kind of have to work hand in hand. The ducks are going to get the same feed they ever got, maybe with a little bit of extra calories in it, like corn, uh, just to give them a little bit extra cal- uh, caloric burn when it's a cold night. But they're going to need shelter real soon, and they're going to need water that's not frozen real soon. Their pond is already freezing every couple hours that they're not in there. If they are not in that pond, the water freezes immediately. So water dishes are not an option right now. It's too cold out for them. But they need fresh water. Ducks and geese need to clear their nostrils by dunking their head completely underwater and washing it out or else they can get eye infections, ear uh, ear infections, nose infections, throat infections, and they can just plain old die. It's a huge part of their hygiene is water. (coughs) So in my mind, I need to get them a shelter that's going to be for them and the water and the food and everything else. We have Muscovy ducks. We now have seven of them. We had three when we did the duck palooza episode back in the spring. Four babies were donated to us by an animal rescue. 
I wasn't really on board with that, but it is what it is. We now have 31 or 32 waterfowl. But yeah, we have seven Muscovies. Muscovies start getting frostbite at around minus 10. It's minus three right now. Now they're inside of a duck pen or a duck coop that's got straw on the floor, walls up, roof on, and there's 30 birds in it, 30 plus birds in it. It is fairly warm in there right now. At minus 10, it doesn't matter if they're inside or outside, they're going to start getting frostbite. And so, <coughs> shelter is paramount to me for water and for the protection of my bird's health. I need them to be healthy, to last the winter so I can get eggs from them next spring. We might be slaughtering some of them in a week or so. I don't know yet. I'm trying to make that decision. Um, three of the Muscovy, the new Sco, uh, Muscov, uh, Muscovies that we got, Scovelings, I guess is the, uh, the youth name, they're not sexually mature yet, which means they're not at full capacity. So I don't really want to slaughter them yet. They're a little young for that. I want to fat, if I'm going to slaughter, because three of the four are drakes. And that means I would have three females and four drakes. Can you see where that could become a problem when we after we talked about ducks last time? So we need to make a decisions on those on those scovelings. They're not sexually mature yet. When they do and they become plump, do we eat them? Do we give them away to somebody else? Do we sell them? If you're looking for some beautiful Muscovy drakes to breed your hens this spring, give me a shout. We've got three of them to give away. Um, probably won't sell them at all. Probably just get rid of them because they were free to us. There's no point in me trying to make money off them. But I have no room for them. I'm feeding them for the whole winter with 28 plus other birds. It's not really my, my thing. I don't really want to be feeding birds that I can't really benefit off of. Um, just an economics thing. It's not that I don't like the birds. I like them a lot. They're beautiful. Uh, these ones were very tame. They were very cuddly for the first few weeks. They're still kind of cuddly. They still kind of hang around when I'm in the pen. They act like how Goose Willis and Turducken used to act, which is kind of nice. But there are three extra mouths that I cannot be feeding for another year. Uh, feed is getting more and more expensive every week. So if not at least every month, if not every week. So for me, to reduce how much feed they're getting for the winter... A, I'm going to be increasing their corn intake, which means I have to get them more grit. The eggshells only produce so much grit. Uh, sand. Um, might even do some kind of clever stuff with jewels. Uh, my wife is a geology nerd, so she goes out and she comes back from prospecting with all these little emeralds or garnets or car... All these jewels, just gemstones. And the real small ones we've been considering tossing into their feed is a grit. And they'll polish them up. And then when we slaughter those birds, take it out of their craw, take it out of their gizzard, and we have these polished stones. But anyways, uh, all those different options for grit. But the other way to reduce on food intake is warm shelter. And keep them in the warm shelter. Now I want my ducks having sunlight. I want my ducks having fresh air. I want my ducks having a good life. It's all about quality of life to me. If these ducks don't have a good quality of life, they're not going to produce eggs for me and they're not going to produce the best fertilizer either. So that's not good. Why would I keep them if they're not doing what I need them to do? What's the justification in keeping 30 plus birds? So 
their coop, their duck coop that's currently there, it's sometimes they're in there for 16 hours because it's just too damn cold outside to let them out. Sometimes it feels like I got to leave them in there all day, all night. And that's not fair to them. That's not healthy for them. It's such a tight space. That's how we've kept it warm all these time, these years is by making it a small space that they all just fit inside of. We have a new plan. And it was inspired a little bit by Goldshaw Farms and what they were doing with some of their ducks and geese this past winter. But what it's going to be is one of those shelter logic frames, the, 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 the cargo, the tarp garages that you can buy at big box stores. Everybody has the frames. Very few people have the covers. The covers get torn to shreds in minutes in one big storm. But anyways, we're going to take a frame. Uh, I've been shopping around, looking around, seeing if anybody's got one for sale. A few people have them for sale. We're going to put it up and I'm going to make, I'm going to forge two foot long dirt staples out of rebar. Basically a big U-shaped with two spikes at the end, bent real sharply together, parallel, and then you put them every uh, two feet and drive them into the ground with a sledgehammer to pin the whole frame right to the ground. It cannot budge. And animals can't easily dig underneath it that way. Then, we're going to install walls. The walls are going to help reinforce the tarps. They're going to help reinforce the structure, make it more strong. We can also pack insulation into these walls to make it warmer. We're then going to end, uh, add end walls, doors at both ends, because that's the one thing I have to complain about with this coop that we currently have, is it has one door and it's too long to easily reach through with a pitchfork and get all the bedding out. Whereas if I had two doors, I could literally just push it with a rake out the one side from the other. Anyways, this will be walled in on both ends and walled partially up from the ground using crates pallets, just scrap wood, whatever we can get. We're going to build it up and I'm just going to slide in insulation, cheap insulation, um, and then wrap the walls in chicken wire. And that's going to reduce the risks of mink, reduce the risks of fox, raccoons, uh, hawks, what have you. And then the rest of the pen or the coop is going to be covered in a clear vinyl tarp. That's right. We are building a duck greenhouse. Inside, I'm going to put their water dish on top of another pallet that is covered in mesh. Uh, the mesh is just to help get the water down. We will kind of set it down. You're going to understand the whole thing in a minute. But a pallet on the ground, water dish on top, another pallet on the ground on the other end, food on top of it. And that lets them cross back and forth. Get their exercise, which is my biggest concern for wintertime, is health. So we're going to have ventilation to help them get fresh air every day. We're going to have sunlight through the clear window, through the clear greenhouse uh, building. That'll also allow them to get full sunlight, but also to be warmed up during the daytime in a greenhouse with a trapped bubble of warm air from their bodies. Uh, we may line the northern part of the wall and ceiling uh, with mylar to make it more like a super shelter for the ducks, the Kohansky super shelter. But uh, at the end of the day, the other benefit is we can hang heat lamps at night high up enough that it'll warm them, inverse cube law notwithstanding, 
but not be so close that it can cause a, gra a fire with all the bedding. Because that's been my biggest concerns. We have a heat lamp in their pen, in their in their coop, but it hangs so low. And like, yeah, that gives them warmth, but yeah, that is a little close to their bedding. I've never liked it. I'm constantly checking it every night. Like twice a night, I'll go out and check the pen and check the coop and make sure I don't smell smoke. Make sure that there's no dusty straw stuck against the bulb. But in a, you know, seven, eight foot tall structure, I can hang from a two foot chain a heat lamp or two. And that's still six feet away from any straw that's on the ground. And that's where we get into the next part is how do we keep it clean in there? Once a week, we pa oh, we're going to start off with two bales of straw broken up all over the ground. And then once a week, we throw one bale of straw at one end. That's where we keep the water and the food. We have pallets on in each corner, basically. We have a corner uh, in, the, in the northwest corner, in the northeast corner, in the southwest corner, in the southeast corner. We're going to have pallets. And once a week, I change where those dishes are. Go down to the south side. Put the dish at one. Uh, put the dish for food. Dish for water. At the north side where they just were, I cover everything with fresh straw. Let them go over to the other side, poop and pee. Well, it's the same thing for a duck. Make their mess, and then the next week throw a fresh bale there while I move their food and water up to the other side. And the benefit of having them up on the pallets is they can make a mess all they want. It doesn't soak all the bedding. It's just going to soak where the pallets are. And then by the time they walk away from it, the bedding is dry. And that's the biggest thing is we don't want them getting frostbite. We don't want their feet getting frostbite. We don't want their bills getting frostbite. We don't want their eyes getting frostbite. And on the, the Muscovies, we don't want their carbuncles, the big red masks of skin wattle all over them. That gets damaged very easily from frostbite. Um, Goliath, our biggest duck, he's a three-year-old Muscovy now. He got really messed up by frostbite last year. He's doing well, but there's some scar tissue. Definitely some scar tissue. So when we're looking at this whole thing, we're having to look at shelter. We're having to look at water. We're having to look at food. And we're having to look at things like warmth. Again, the heat lamps. Or do we put in heating tiles? Or do we let just see how warm it gets? I'm going to be having a thermometer. <coughs> pardon me. A digital wireless thermometer inside them uh their pen and outside of their uh, sorry inside of their greenhouse and outside of the greenhouse and then the reader or the receiver back in my house so i can tell if it gets below minus five inside at night go turn those heat lamps on or go heat up the tiles or whatever it may be or push them all into one corner and corral them there so it's warm in one spot whatever it has to be um lighting or lights Ducks and all animals need light. They all need sunlight, just like we do. Animals get seasonal depression, just like humans do. And that can affect their mental health, their physical health, everything. Which is why I decided to go with a greenhouse idea. Instead of just building a bigger coop that's just completely dark inside, and they just have like heat lamps for light... I want them to get solar radiation. I want them to get sunlight. This helps them. But also, the benefit is I can leave this until early spring set up like this. Maybe ventilate, uh, venting more. But this setup allows us to leave them outside at night. 
which means if the sun comes up before I get up or my wife gets up, they're already getting sunlight. And ducks and geese produce eggs when they get up at least 12 to 14 hours of sunlight. <laughs> Optimally 14 to 16 hours. That's the optimal limit, uh, uh, light. It's 14 to 16, but they can start producing eggs at 12 hours of sunlight. And so putting them to bed, take, uh, way, uh, laying them out in the morning, letting them in, putting them back in the night, don't have to do that. They can stay in there until it gets a little too warm to be in a greenhouse. And then we can, if we decide to, just take the plastic vinyl cover off and cover the whole thing in chicken wire. We have basically a giant chicken tractor. If we wanted to. I don't want to do that. For spring, as soon as it's truly spring, the plan is to take uh, to basically disassemble it and let them back into their pen. The other part of that is we actually want to start building their new pen while they're still in this giant greenhouse. And then when it's time, corral them into the new pen and just disassemble everything. Take down the fencing of the current pen, take down the entire greenhouse, put that stuff all away until next winter, and then we start the whole process again. And then all that deep litter becomes compost. And that's why we aren't too worried about getting enough compost for next year. We have enough compost for this coming season. And we will have from their deep litter of maybe six months of compost, potentially. From now, we got December, January, February, March, April, May. Yeah, six months of deep litter out of that pen, out of that greenhouse. That has been warm and lacto, uh, bacterial, uh, micro, microbially active, microactive or bio, bioactive is the word I'm looking for. Bioactive the whole time because it never had a chance to really truly freeze because it was the insulation for the floor. And so in a greenhouse with warm bodies in it and heat lamps, so the ground should be somewhat thaw by spring already. So it should already be microbially active enough that when we make a pile of it, Boom, thermophilic compost. Like, potentially. We, we don't know for sure yet. This is a big project. Exercise, light, warmth, food, water, shelter. These are the things you have to think about for cattle, for quail, for ducks, for rabbits, for sheep, for pigs. You need to think about it for all your animals, any kind of livestock. What are you doing to benefit them and to protect them from the wintertime? And for the winter time, do you cover them all with Vaseline and just hope that does the, the best from the wind chill and, and frostbite? I don't think that's a good idea. Can you, what, what resources do you have available to make their shelter work for them and work for you for the winter time? Water is a big deal, of course, again, because it could freeze, but also it could get them wet. So how do we protect them? How do we take care of them? How do we take care of all their needs? Do you have a pump? and a well near where your livestock are? Or are you having to bucket hot water from the house to them? Because I've done that for two winters. It sucks. I'm not going to lie. It sucks. It absolutely sucks. What I would love to have is an underground cistern that's, you know, two feet underground that just collects rainwater all winter, uh, all spring, summer, fall, and then come winter I can just pump from that right to them. I would love that. Maybe down the road. That might be next, maybe 2024, we might have that. Not 2023. I don't think we'll have that in 2023. But we might have that in 2024. It's just a big cistern 
that collects rainwater off the surface of the ground. Don't have to set up roofs and stuff like that and rain catchment systems. The ground is the rain catchment. I've seen things like that across the states and a few other places in the world. I think it would be really a clever way to do it. So that's the biggest concern looking down the road is how can I make water sustainable for me to transport and sustainable for them to get and know that it's not going to have any problems of freeze up in the winter. That's the biggest challenge. That's the absolute biggest challenge, <laughs> other than the frostbite thing, which we've already resolved. Greenhouse. So, livestock, I think we kind of don't want to build the pun, but beat a dead horse. But um, So, the garden we've covered, livestock we've covered. Now we get into the actual home. Your home, where you're going to be living on your homestead. If you're wood heated, you need to think about firewood. We've done the firewood episode. I'm not going to dive too much deeper into it. Two things I will say. For warm days or shoulder seasons, aspen slash poplar, those are your friends. They don't burn all day. So at midday you're not living in a sauna or living in an oven. But they give you that warmth in the morning to kill the chill and drive out the humidity. They give you that Ill, little bit of warmth before you go to bed as you want to have a little bit of warmth while you're changing. Uh, it's the perfect kind of firewood for those cool season times before it gets down into the negatives. Uh, for the negatives... If you live in southern Ontario, you live in New York State, you live in Pennsylvania, the American South, uh, Northeast, or the American Southeast, you probably have a tree around called Black Locust. By far the most sustainable firewood I've ever researched in my life. A, it burns slow and steady, so you don't have to burn as much of it. That's a big bonus. <clears throat> B... It only takes a short while to grow it for firewood. And it suckers. So you cut a live locust down. All those roots become rhizomes that send up new trees. And those trees can be ready to be firewood in as little as 15 to 20 years. Not 30 to 50, not 60 to 90. 20, 15 to 20 years tops. And they will be large enough and dense enough to be adequate firewood. How often have you heard that? Add the fact that they're one of the highest BTUs in the American Northeast and Eastern Canada. They're up there with hickory. They're up there, they're past oak. They're better than the, the legendary red and the regal white oaks. They're, they're better at BTUs. British thermal units are hotter burning wood, but they burn slow. I've had friends take locust off my property. We don't have a wood stove in, the, in our house yet. The, the new homestead home, our off-grid that we're working on, hopefully by 2025 we'll have it wet certified with a wood stove inside. Please, if you're installing wood stoves, please, please, please have it done by professionals. Don't do it yourself. A, you don't want to be the one responsible for burning your house down. B, your insurance company would rather hear that it was done professionally. Let's just put it that way. Um, but locust, friends of mine that have been borrowing, not borrowing, uh, getting locust off me the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, that I do have wood stoves, 
they're like calling me at like 10 o'clock at night being like, tell me more about this wood. Why? I put it at five o'clock and it's the same piece of wood burning and it's 10 o'clock now. Or they'll send me photos at 1 a.m. Been burning since five. Uh, oh, I, you gave me an armload of wood and that was two days ago and I still got three more pieces of wood to burn. Like that's how efficient of a burn it can be if you season it properly. It takes about six to nine months to, to season if you really want it well seasoned a year. Um, but it's pretty much ready to go within six months. And if you cut it down in the winter, which is one of the best times to cut firewood is winter time because it's got the lowest amount of water content. Um, cut in the winter time, it'll be ready midsummer. Do you need to burn locusts in midsummer? No, then you know it'll be ready by next winter. Cut it, stack it, forget about it until it starts getting too cold for your poplar wood. Um, other woods you can use oak. White oak, red oak burn practically the same. Hickory burns a little hotter um, and it burns steady. There's a lot of options out there though. There's a lot of options. Don't be afraid to experiment. Avoid your, your softwoods, your coniferous trees such as spruce, pine, uh, cedar, tamarack just because they produce a lot of tar. Poplar slash aspen makes very good kindling that doesn't produce a lot of tar, if at all. So that's a great option. Tar equals creosote okay if it's a if it's a coniferous tree that's got tar in it it will produce a lot of creosote which leads to chimney fires don't want that so yeah firewood locust poplar those are probably my top favorites that i've been playing with for the last two years now mostly the poplar thing i got from my buddy chris gilmore from chrisoutdoors.ca so check him out uh, their TikTok is doing great, and that's one of the places I first learned that about. So if you want to learn more, more about firewood, check out the firewood episode, but also check out Chris Outdoors on TikTok. So beyond firewood, new thing about snow clearing. Do you just need a snow shovel for a little laneway? Do you need a plow on the front of your truck, front of your ATV, maybe a tractor? What acreage of land do you need to clear snow from? This is an actually important question. This is going to be involving your fuel. This will be involving your labor. This may be involving your physical labor, your emotional labor, your mental labor, uh, being able to operate machines, being able to operate hand tools, clearing of snow. You can't just always use a flamethrower. As much as I love using a flamethrower, Technically, it's a tiger torch or weed dragon, but I call it a flamethrower because it just sounds cool. It makes me feel like I'm in a, you know, action movie. You can't always use those. Doesn't always work to your best advantage, especially depending if you got tarmac, but or gas nearby or a vehicle. Um, but there's a lot of different perspectives on that. Where can we go with that? Are we going to use salt? Salt costs money. Salt is salinating fresh water in ditches, in creeks, in streams, in big water. Where we're salinating our water, we're taking away the freshness of our water, making it less and less uh, hospitable to certain biology, certain creatures, certain um, protozoa, certain bacterium that are native bacterium that need to be in that water, certain amphibians, certain fish. We're changing the water chemistry in our fresh lakes, in our freshwater lakes. 
from the amount of salt we're putting on our roads, from the amount of salt we're putting on our driveways. Are there better options? Is sand an option for you? Do you, do you want to clear it all with that kind of stuff? We've got to get rid of the ice somehow. Can you get an ice chipper? One of those big chisel spud things that people walk along with and just kind of crack the ice with and scrape it off? What if you don't have anything other than a gravel driveway or a gravel road? Do you need to put salt or sand on that? Do you need to plow that? Or can you leave snowpack? Can you drive on snowpack? I know that's not what a lot of people recommend. It can cause damage to the roads and stuff. But it can also be more sustainable in a lot of other ways. So it all comes down to like the, the situation you're in, the logistics you're in. you got to figure that out. Talk to your low, uh, to your neighbors. Talk to, to friends. If you got young kids in the area, see if you can start up a job for them where they shovel driveways. All that kind of stuff. Bring it back to the old days. Snow clearing. Food storage. Not going to dive too deep into it. How are you going to store all your food? We're moving into an off-grid cabin. We have solar. We have a fridge with a very small freezer. I'm a trapper, a hunter, and we bring in a lot of meat. That meat's got to go somewhere. Other frozen vegetables, frozen uh, dinners that we don't want to have to cook a whole meal. We just want to throw something in the oven. That's all going to get stored somewhere. Come winter, as long as a container is, is rodent-proof, you can store food outside. Right? That's that's kind of the beauty of wintertime is it becomes a freezer. You just got to make sure mice, squirrels, <coughs> rats can't get in. There's a few ways you can do that. Steel containers with big snap-on lids that are, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sealed. Um, those are great. We're actually looking at making ice boxes out of ice. Uh, basically, thin trays or sorry, shallow trays that are about a meter, uh, let's say three feet long and two feet tall or two feet wide. You fill that with water, leave it outside, let it freeze. You get four of those, there's four walls. You make, get six of them, you got four walls, a floor, and a roof. Snap, snap, snap. Everything fits together. And you can literally weld them together with hot water from a kettle. And then just stick them together, make sure it's around minus 20 when you're doing this. Stick them back together. And they'll stick. Just hold them together. You can build a little brace. The other option is build wooden boxes. Not the most rodent-proof. Line them with ice. Might make it more rodent-proof. And just leave them in there. Hay boxes where you have <coughs> um, hay stacked in, packed tight in between two layers of uh, two cells, basically. A big wooden box and a smaller wooden box. And then you put your food in the smaller wooden box. And you can do that for cooking or you can do that for cooling. You know, you can do the either which way. Put ice in there and then put food on top of the ice and everything will stay cold. It's like an old school cooler. There's a whole lot of different ways to store food frozen. F storing the rest of our food, it's a small space. The house is 40, I think 45 feet long and 14 feet wide, right? It was shipped like a trailer, right? It, it was built on the chassis of an old trailer. So it's, an, it's a small space. It sounds big, but it's not. 
okay, how do we store enough food for the year in there? Well, what if we build skirting? Because we got to build skirting anyways to insulate the house from the height of the house down to the concrete pad we built. What if we put Rubbermaids of food or Tupperware or whatever non-brand specific plastic totes food in there with sealed lids so rodents can't get in. We can put grain in there. We can put beans in there. We can put other legumes in there. All that kind of stuff. Potatoes, whatever. And it stays around 3 degrees to 5 degrees Celsius underneath the house when it's fully skirted and insulated. Okay. Cool. How do we keep the rodents out? Plastic can be chewed through. I've had multiple containers chewed through by rodents. Um, do we go to steel? Do we go to tin? Do we go to aluminum boxes? Or containers? Do we put everything in mason jars and seal lids on them and just stick them in there in, in totes? Is that what we do? These are all options. Root cellars. You know, maybe by 2027 I'll have a root cellar. I don't know. I'd like to have a root cellar. I've always loved the efficiency of root cellars. And who knows? We're getting more tornadoes around here because, well, according to certain people who listen to the podcast, that thing doesn't exist. Climate change never happened. But, you know, we're getting more tornadoes than we've ever had. Right where I live. Like, ten times the amount of tornadoes than we've ever had. Ever. Okay. It doesn't exist. It would still be a good idea to have a root cellar for that ten times the amount of tornadoes we've ever had before. But anyways, uh, preparing for being snowed in is kind of like the last part of this whole episode. You need to make sure you have food and water that is potable. You need to make sure you have power, that you have ways of being hygienic. How are you going to bathe if the uh, free if the lines freeze? How are you going to flush the toilet if the lines freeze? What are you going to do? How are you going to bathe yourself? How are you going to brush your teeth? How are you going to store food? What if you have to be stocked up for weeks or months? This this gets into like the, the whole prepper attitude. Uh, people start saying, oh, it's not going to happen. 1998 ice storm killed a bunch of people in Quebec and Ottawa. I lost an aunt. Her injuries led to her demise, and she passed away because of the injuries she, she sustained during the 98 ice storm. People were stuck for weeks. Don't tell me it can't happen in this area. You tell me that freak weather can't happen like that. I'll recommend you go listen to the derecho episode that me and Ryan recorded in June. There, there's always, always the possibility you're going to get stuck and have to stay put for a while. Get things to entertain yourselves. If you like to whittle, come winter, go get a bunch of fresh cut pieces of wood and stockpile them on your wood pile where they're going to be frozen for the winter. Take a piece off. For every day that you're stuck out, make a spoon or a cup or a little figurine of an owl or a gnome or a elk, whatever. A car. Make all your Christmas toys for all your nieces, nephews, your own kids, your nibblings, whatever. Grandkids. I don't care. Whoever it is. Your kids that are 36 years old have a steady job and can't stand 
how sap you are at the holidays. Make them some gnomes and reindeer and elves and Santa Claus out of wood. Some blocks of basswood. Whittle them out. Board games. Don't have, like, not just video games and stuff. Like, I know that video games are something that are common right now. And we, I've talked about this in the past on the podcast. I'm not anti-technology. I think it's a great thing when used in good balance. I'm saying when the power is out, you may want to have some Monopoly and Risk and Uno cards and just regular playing cards. If you've got a kid that's into fantasy games or into fantasy movies, introduce them to Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons or something. You get into it too so that when things like a storm that lasts for nine days straight happens, you guys don't you know want to kill each other. You just want to kill each other in a game. I think that's a much more beneficial way to do it. So, food, water, entertainment, hygiene, uh, power. We talked about my generator during the Rachel Bus Storm episode. Um, having a power source you can run for a little bit if you have enough gas stocked up in your garage or whatever, uh, in your tool shed. If you've had it, and that's one thing I do recommend. Uh, as much as I try to make it very clear that I don't have uh, much of a prepper mindset, I'm a homesteader. Homesteaders do coincide and kind of you have a Venn diagram of like survivalist, doomsday people and preppers who are kind of like borderlined that and also not that, and you have like I don't know. The poor, the poor Proles Almanac folk, and the Poor Proles Network, and you have like homesteaders. You have them all kind of on a Venn diagram. They all have some intersectionality there, is what I'm getting at. So, one of the ones that I do support is if you have generators and small motors, things like motorboats and ATVs, you should have a few gallons of gas stockpiled. You know, just like four or five jerry cans. And then use them up by the end of the season. So like by the end of winter, you should have used up that gas. Because gas goes bad. Um, I'm sure there's fuel stabilizers and stuff like that that you can get. But if I'm going to be running a snow plow, like a snow blower, we were talking about clearing snow, I'm going to need gas. If I have a snowmobile to be able to get back down to the, where the groceries and stuff are, that's going to need gas. If I'm worried about the power running out because there's been an ice storm and all the power lines are pretty heavy in ice and my solar panels aren't getting enough sun each day because it's so dark because it's freaking winter. Generator, so that's three things already that need gas. And I haven't even talked about a car or a truck. Snowblower, snowmobile, or ATV, whatever, small engine. Generator, chainsaw. You got to cut more firewood. You got to cut that tree off your power line don't do that by the way call hydro for that stuff but tree that comes down and you got to get it cleared during the ice storm or during a big blizzard you, you need a chainsaw for that that needs gas having four or five jerry cans is not something that i've considered doomsday prepper mentality that's wisdom that's just experience saying no we're we're gonna have bad moments where we might have a week out of the whole winter that's gonna really suck and we're not going to be able to get out for whatever reason, especially if you're a homesteader. Okay, 
I better have gas for the motors. I better have gas for the power tools. I better have gas for the generator. Okay. Let's say <coughs> five five-gallon jugs, jerry cans of gas. That's, what, 25 gallons? That's not crazy. It sounds crazy, but that's not crazy. That can get used up very quickly in one week. We're going through about every day and a half of that generator. We're going through five gallons of gas. Maybe a little bit less. Maybe about four gallons every one and a half to two days. Depending on how many things we had plugged into it. So it's not absurd to say for a week you might need 25 gallons or more of gas. And then come spring, make sure you use up all that gas and refill the jerry cans for spring. Because then you're going to have gas-powered rototiller, gas-powered chainsaw, your ATV or your tractors or whatever you're going to be using for the garden. Summer, make sure that gas gets changed out again. All that, all the time. Just make sure that you're running gas. If you've got gas stockpile it for the season, at the end of the season, make sure it gets used up. If you're not using gas-powered stuff and you're using uh, battery-powered chainsaws and battery-powered lawnmowers and battery-powered snow throwers or snow blowers, um, battery-powered uh, weed whackers, everything, make sure you have a power source that is stable. You're not hooked up to the grid for that kind of stuff. You want to make sure you have at least a generator, if not solar or something else. So all these kinds of things being kind of compiled together, tarps is something that I always recommend for wintertime. You'll always have to cover something from the snow. Either your ATV, you know, has some damage and you got to take it apart and you're not got enough time to get to the store now. Well, you don't want the snow to come and blow over all that and cover over all that and you lose parts while you're in the middle of fixing it. If you have a, a big storm that rips half the roof off your chicken coop, putting a tarp over for now while, to protect your birds while you get everything else figured out to repair it, that's a good idea. Part of your skirting to your cabin gets ripped off by the windstorm or a bear or something tarp for now until tomorrow when you have more daylight to repair it properly all these kinds of things one item tarp one item tarp snow shovels inside the house and outside of the house uh, i personally like the idea especially here in canada and if you're in the northern states especially in places like wyoming um doors that open inward not outward if you have an outward facing outside, like, you know, there's like screen door and then the main door of a house, take the screen door off for the winter. Because if you get heavy snowfall of two or three feet and then you try to open that door, you're fighting it. You're fighting it the whole time. You're going to blow your back out trying to move that snow. Get yourself inside, uh, inside opening doors for the wintertime. Big selling point to me when I look at houses, is barn doors or inside opening doors, not outside opening doors. Tarps, snow shovels, hand tools, in case you do run out of gas or power. You better know how to use a buck saw. You better know how to use an axe. You better know how to use a snow shovel. All that kind of stuff. That's about it, really, for this episode. Um... We can dive a whole lot deeper. We really could if we really wanted to. I don't really want to. I think we've kind of 
covered a lot of good stuff and we've discussed a lot of these similar subjects in the past. So I don't think we have to dive any deeper into it. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode. I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. The people that literally keep us keeping going with this podcast. Being able to feed sushi and tracker and make sure they don't, you know, lead a revolt against us with the ducks and geese. Being able to support Rye and I through this process uh, while we're getting ready to start doing in-person classes again. Our supporters, both those of you that share this podcast, and please share it as far and wide. Show these uh, show these episodes to your friends. Get your friends hooked on it too. We love having your support. But if you're a supporter on Patreon, the financial support you're giving us to keep the power on, literally, so that we can do the research for these episodes, so that we can do the trips for this uh, for these episodes, like so much comes from you, and we never forget that. And we're always trying to kick back as much as we can back to our Patreon supporters from all tiers. So very soon now that the chaos of the last couple of months is starting to wind down, uh, we're going to be getting hard on Patreon projects as well. We've got uh, support coins for everybody coming very soon. We've got uh, clothing coming very, very soon. It'll be in the early new year. We'll be putting out a clothing uh, merchandise for our supporters on Patreon in-person and online classes available to Patreon supporters. Check that kind of stuff out. Go over to patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. Become a supporter today. Like People like Paul, Nathan, Martin, Renee, Cassidy, all these amazing people and more over at patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Get ready for winter, folks, as that show that everybody was ranting about a couple years ago said, uh, winter is coming.